everyone. Uh, thanks for that kind introduction. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. I haven't been in Oxford in 15 years or so, and uh, it was nice to see sun out this afternoon. It was uh, a little hard for us soft Californians coming in yesterday, but uh, it, it's absolutely great being here. Um, well, as, uh, as Moshe had indicated, um, I'm going to talk about uh, this sort of intersection between designing cities for mobility, uh, placemaking, and, and what does this mean in terms of competitiveness. And I have to admit, this is part of the, the rhetoric we find in the United States today, which is being used to, to justify um, fairly bold changes in how we make decisions in infrastructure investment, uh, alternatives to the private automobile. Um, a lot of the debates come down to what does this mean in terms of competitiveness in the global marketplace. And um, we, uh, we in the States, you know, obviously what we do in this field of transportation uh, is very much a reaction to the fact that we have a legacy of the last 40, 50 years of investing in infrastructure and in designing our cities for automobility. So this is the classic laundry list, if you will, of the, the concerns that we have uh, of creating car-dependent cities. And obviously much of what we're trying to do it, is design cities and create cho uh, choices which um, allow people to take alternatives to the car, be it public transport, walking, or driving, or whatever the case might be. And uh, I, I think it's understood in, in America, where we have vast amounts of land and uh, we've designed our cities where it's very convenient and easy and almost effortless to drive a car, that the only way to promote alternative forms of mobility is, we're increasingly hearing this, there has to be what's called a livability premium. That is, we've got to create urban places where it's not only logistically and functionally uh, competitive or attractive to walk or bike or take public transit, but, but it's indeed a pleasure. It, it's, we're um, we're connecting these to high-quality, high-amenity environments. So now we have the Secretary of Transportation in the U.S., who is very um, proactively promoting alternative modes of transportation, but at the same breath, he's talking about livable communities. How do we create livable places? So it's kind of created this... Uh, interest in, in what's the uh, set of factors that we need to bring together to not only promote alternative forms of mobility, but at the same time to transform our cities and places so um, they uh, really promote a high quality of life. So it's that kind of intersection of topics that are really part of the political discourse we're finding increasingly in the U.S. Um, and obviously this is tied to a, a much uh, larger agenda that it's not only trying to get people to walk and bike and take public transit more and promote clean air and physical fitness, but I think we're all aware of, of the global implications of an increasingly consumptive lifestyle and car-dependent uh, living. And uh, this, this is one of the studies, for instance, that has gotten a lot of attention in the U.S. that begins to speak about the relative importance of urban growth management as a strategy to cope with climate change. So here's a study which shows if um, we were to make substantial advancements in fuel economy, that's shown in the green line here. So if we were to assume, by European standards, this might not look terribly impressive, but if we were to assume by 2020 we could average 35 miles per gallon, compact, subcompact, very fuel-efficient vehicles, and at the same time introduce um, biofuels and, and hydrogen and alternative low-carbon fuel sources, that's shown in the purple line, then we could begin to drive our CO2 emissions in the U.S. down to more or less um, 1990 levels or below, sort of in, in keeping with the uh, Kyoto Protocol. So that's kind of the technological response. But if you uh, account for the fact that um, there's a growth in vehicle kilometers traveled, or VMT. I, 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 I'm, I use these terms interchangeably, VKT, VMT. I, I assume here in the UK context you use miles instead of the uh, uh, meter system. So, I, I, so VKT and VMT is the same concept, obviously. But if, if we simply um, adjust for the fact that our cities... I just want to. Um, how do I control this to go backwards again? I, I'm sorry. I, uh, 
Okay, I'll, I'll just, I think it's easier for me. So again, the blue line reflects um, if we were to really do some fairly substantial technological advances, how we can drive this down. But if you count for the fact that our cities are continuing to spread out, trip origin destinations are further and further apart, we're following increasingly a car-dependent settlement pattern, uh, all of the benefits that would come from technological advances have been eliminated. So simply uh, looking at this from a technological standpoint only, I think it's increasingly understood will not resolve the problem. We, we need to make advances on both fronts. So what I would call sustainable technologies, again, more fuel efficient vehicles and low carbon fuel supplies are part of the equation, but, and here I've got the VMT instead of VKT, but a sustainable urbanism. Uh, at the same time, reducing the demand for travel in terms of number of vehicle trips and obviously the distance of these trips. So, um, you know, I would very much characterize the debate in the U.S. at this time is we're trying to make progress on both fronts. And I'm going to try to make a little argument later that unfortunately these have been viewed as somewhat bifurcated strategies. It's sort of one or the other. They're almost competitive in terms of scarce financial resources. Where do we put a lot of our effort into? But but I, I think they can really promote cross-purposes. They can really be mutually reinforcing. So I, I'm going to try to make that point a little while later. Well, um, many of us in the United States, like you here in the UK and, and elsewhere in Europe, have begun to try to inform and shape the policy debate. Uh, so uh, all of you are familiar with the sort of the new urbanism principles. If we can begin to create compact mixed-use pedestrian-friendly development, this happens to be some models we ran in the San Francisco Bay Area for the uh, Metropolitan Transportation Commission. They're the regional authority. Um, but our numbers begin to suggest all things being equal, and, and that's a big assumption, but if we assume gas prices and uh, uh, household structures don't change radically, uh, then you can project that uh, these kinds of urban designs would have, by our model estimates, fairly significant impacts in reducing VK and CO2 emissions vis-a-vis -vis sprawl. Um, so uh, this happens to show the CO2 emissions per household. The green is a low footprint. Obviously, the red being the suburban kind of auto-oriented places are substantially higher, again, on the order of magnitude of two and a half to three times as great. So our challenge, again, is how to create these somewhat European-type environments, you know, not unlike what you have out the door here in Oxford, which encourages more cycling and, and, uh, and walking. Now. Um, just to give you a, a little flavor, uh, the kind of research we're doing on these very topics in the States, uh, this was a recent article uh, I co-authored that came out in the journal Environment and Planning, uh, where we, we tried to, we had a fairly rich time series, so 1990 to 2004, uh, that tried to take this equation, again, the sustainable mobility piece and the sustainable urbanism piece, and try to sort each of those components to see what the relative contribution could be uh, towards uh, reducing carbon dioxide emissions. And it was, uh, we had uh, over 360 metropolitan areas across the U.S., so it was fairly rich cross-sectional time series data. Um, I'm getting a little feedback here, but um, we also had very detailed uh, disaggregate data for each metropolitan area. So for instance, for every metropolitan area, we were able to take an average accessibility index. Um, we couldn't do it for all of those time points, but we did it for a number of time points and extrapolated the figures. Uh, but this, for instance, shows the lighter shade represents uh, relatively high accessible levels for those um, one kilometer grid cells darker colors represent lower. So we could take averages for the entire metropolitan area over time across these 300 plus uh, metro areas. So, you know, through the uh, wonderment of GIS, we were able to do that kind of detailed analysis. Um, now, I, I hope the next slide doesn't cause half of you in the room to sort of get up and leave, because it's not the kind of slide you want to look at. But just um, the kind of thing we did here, uh, what you know, what's called a structural equation analysis, but we tried to make sense over time these metropolitan areas, this sort of complex set of relationships, and uh, this this is a. Uh, 
quote from uh, a politician down in Moynihan that the curse of our field is everything's connected to everything. And you know, we tried to, in some way, model these things. But our focus very much was, you know, what do we know about the effects of where we build rail? Rail density was simply the track miles per metropolitan area. How does that feed in to reflect the consumption of rail, passenger miles per capita, and in turn, how that influences BMT per capita? Um, and at the same time, we know where you build rail influences population density, which over time should have a two-way relationship. And then there's a direct connection to population density. Okay, so um, you know what these structural equation models will allow you to do is, is try to trace direct paths and indirect paths to see the collectivity of how, in this case, rail investment along with the impacts on land use translates into BMT. And you can see uh, by these elasticities. Uh, they're not terribly high. Uh, you know, it's basically suggesting over this time series across these U.S. metropolitan areas, uh, as we build rail and how that shapes the density and how that influences travel demand, how that eventually gets translated to BMT, controlling for the other links in this path, set of paths, it's a pretty weak set of relationships. And uh, any of those, any of you have been to American cities, that's probably no great surprise. We don't have a great successful track record of investing in rail and leveraging that to reshape our cities and encourage more walkable, compact, mixed-use places. Um, but. The other part of the story is that where we have had population growth, we've also invested in roads. So without going through that detailed path, um, this basically says that the relationship over time is that it all, a doubling of population density is related to a 60% reduction in VMT. But the fact that where we have population growth is where we respond by road investment, we also have higher road density, that has an offsetting effect so that the BMT reducing effect of road design basically uh, moderated the direct effect by, by roughly one third. And, we kind of, and this, I think, in many ways characterizes what we see in the US, what I'm calling the LA, Los Angeles effect. Um, th this happens to be uh, the suburbs of Los Angeles, but, but I think it's very representative of the challenge we face. Um, we have cities that evolved in the last 30 years, single use, thinly spread, moderate density development. Um, and at the same time, we're trying to layer in these point-to-point -point rail systems. So simply the geometry of the technology uh, doesn't line up with the geography of traveling, which is many origins to many destinations. But LA has been described as dysfunctional densities because what you find there is a lot of two to three story walk-up garden apartments that are horizontally spread. So they're not aligned along a linear corridor where a point-to-point -point rail system will be a very effective technology. But on the other hand, they're too high density for a car-based society. So LA has the worst congestion, the worst air pollution, and the highest energy consumption per capita. So, so, so uh, it's been called the very worst of all worlds. The densities are not organized and designed to make public transit work well, but they're simply too high for a car-based society. And I, at the risk of oversimplification, I think that in many ways um, <laughs> represents somewhat the schizophrenic personality we have of a lot of American cities. They have those kind of attributes. And I, I just compare this to a place like Stockholm, which was very conscientiously designed as kind of a rail-based metropolis with a necklace of pearls where um, actually the densities of, of Stockholm are no greater than Los Angeles. They're just organized along linear corridors with uh, green space between the nodes. So they're, they're what I would call functional densities. And this just happens to be a comparison I did it a few years back of LA and Stockholm, where just on the VKT number, you, you could estimate roughly the uh, carbon footprint to the degree that carbon dioxide is fairly proportional to vehicle kilometers traveled is, is one half. In Stockholm, even though that per capita income on a purchase a parity purchase power basis is every bit as high in Stockholm as it is in LA. So it's not an income factor, certainly. It's just the result of a fundamentally different built form and set of, of transportation choices. Um, so um, just further on that point. Um, you know, a, a place like Stockholm, and I'm going to kind of morph now to what in America I think is increasingly considered to be probably the most viable urban design strategy. Maybe Yeah, okay. I don't know if you could control the volume, but I, it, does, does my voice project well enough? Okay. Thank you, you're right. Um, 
you know, we have very much adopted this. We've we, we tried to embrace this idea, okay, um, let's invest quite heavily in rail transit systems or bus rapid transit systems, and at the same time, encourage this compact mixed-use development around the stations, but also embrace this kind of place-making mentality that these are kind of car-limited districts, a very strong accent on livability, human scale, not imposing densities, but at the same time, functional densities to make um, rail investments work, uh, a multiplicity of uses, and again, a real focus on amenity, arts, culture, uh, high-quality living environments that will attract choice consumers to these settings. So, Now, um, some people have referred to this focus on transit-oriented design as a conflict between place and mode. So, you know, part of the notion is that if you invest in a system like this, uh, you can use these stations as focal points for reorganizing urban growth. They become symbolically and functionally the centerpiece of the community. Uh, so, uh, they're places where, in theory, uh, they would be hubs not only to get on and off of trains to connect to the rest of the region, but they would be locations where there would be public celebrations, public demonstrations, street concerts, uh, farmers markets, uh, really place, uh, places which bring uh, within a walk shed most activities together of a community. So that's kind of the placemaking logic. And in, I mean, if you think about it, if there's any logical point on the map, particularly outside of our core cities and suburban areas, that we really want to focus density um, in mixed use activities, it should be around transit stations. That's a pretty eminently sensible idea, and I think most politicians and lay citizens can kind of relate to that. But there's a schism here because at the same time we want to use these, um, I think of a transit station as a window between the immediate community and the surrounding region. Uh, we want to sort of build up this quality of place. They're also nodes, they're logistical nodes. So they're interchange points where parking and bus and paratransit and pedestrians and delivery trucks, all of them come together. And in many ways we design stations from an engineering perspective to handle the logistical challenges of these kind of nodes, uh, and often there's significant conflict points. So they're designed for safety in mind, great separation, uh, which doesn't always make for uh, effortless, somewhat seamless interconnectivity. So uh, it's almost this challenge between how do you, on the one hand, design and serve the nodal function of a, of a transit station vis-a-vis -vis the placemaking function. And I, you know, my own sense is where the, uh, this comes out is some stations should be more of a nodal function and others might play a placemaking function, but there's probably a spectrum along those two extremes. Well, in the United States, um, quite honestly, where we have decided to build our transit stations uh, quite often has been in some of the least attractive locations. There are places where this happens to be the light rail system uh, in Silicon Valley in, in San Jose near the Cisco campus, but you can see it's just surrounded by seats of parking and not terribly an attractive pedestrian milieu. Or uh, this happens to be where I live, uh, the Arenda BART system east of Berkeley, where uh, we put the station in the median of freeway to minimize right-of-way land acquisition costs, to minimize disruption, but at the same time, we fail to leverage some of the potential redevelopment activity and placemaking functions that we could otherwise occur. Now, there was a very active debate about whether to offline, to run the, the BART line in the median of the freeway, which makes eminently good sense because you can minimize right-of-way costs, but if you want to leverage development, you have to be prepared to incur the higher cost to offline the station to sit it in the town center uh, it took where you can really bring about, you know, create a more placemaking uh, sort of outcome. Uh, but you can then go back in the freeway median. So again, you can, for the vast majority of the system, you can um, minimize costs by aligning it along this transport corridor, but those access points really become a question. Uh, you simply make it a more logistical, functional place, which this is, but it's never going to create a walkable, high-quality urban environment where people want to live, work, and shop, and basically hang around that node. Um, so, um, as I mentioned, the, the Federal Transit Administration is now putting a lot of money in the U.S. to try to encourage places to focus on transit nodes 
as livable hubs. And you know what they're is providing enough upfront money in the way of small merchant business loans and streets money for streetscape enhancements to really push this kind of placemaking um, activity in hopes of kind of encouraging redevelopment with eventual economic stimulation. Uh, you know, this happens to be uh, the Freefill Station in Oakland. This is Berkeley. Uh, and this has long been kind of a stagnant urban district. It's had the BART station there for 35 years, and absolutely nothing has happened, in part because, you know, I think a lot of central cities, uh, there's been a disinvestment and a relocation of the a lot of the economic activities to the Silicon Valley or the East Bay. Um, so they have pumped tremendous amount of monies and they've gotten a fair amount of revenue from private foundations to really push this kind of placemaking function under the um, guise that this will economically stimulate this location. And, and, and they've actually uh, invested um, about uh, 100 plus million dollars of, of undergrounding utilities and uh, expanding the sewer water network and, and a tremendous amount of streetscape enhancements and investing in schools. So quite a bit of investment on this experience that this is going to radically transform this area. So um, right now, uh, you know, this is very much this kind of Stockholm model I mentioned. Uh, you know, you create a public civic center right outside the station, and this becomes the congregation point. So they have farmers markets and open air concerts and a lot of small stops. Uh, and this happens to be the, the the key access. So you can see it's a pedestrian car restricted zone. Um, it's got sort of this uh, Tuscan style architecture. You know, kind of ground level retail and, and second and third floor um, housing or loft space or small offices. Uh, when you get off to the main street, this is kind of what it looks like. So not a terribly attractive uh, environment when you get from the BART station to the core of the community to currently what is the main street. Uh, so again, um, what we got was a small grant from the Department of Transportation at Caltrans, and this was money funneled through the FTA, again, as part of this placemaking grant to see what kind of transformations could occur. So this is just simply using Photoshop, the kinds of images that we came up that could plausibly be introduced. Now, um, in truth, this is not what this is going to look like. This is done simply from a participatory planning standpoint. The idea is to give residents and business uh, merchants of, of this neighborhood plausible images over a 20, 30 year time frame, the kinds of transformative changes that could take place. Now, you know, what we've tried to do in this very analysis is it's a constrained analysis. You can get this, but at a certain cost. It's going to cost a certain amount of money in terms of increased property taxes and sales taxes to generate sufficient revenue uh, to pay for this. But we've also run numbers suggesting there will be job creation, which are going to generate more incomes and revenue streams from sales taxes, which then will go back into this district to help pay for that. So, so this was backed with what we call a cost pro forma, doing the economic analysis to show that if you do this well, uh, you can generate enough local taxes to make these betterments and enhancements. You know, why, um, why I kind of like this is in the field of urban planning when we try to portray transformations of districts we tend to use this plan view um, you know it's as if you're a bird flying over the community looking down and of course this is not how people experience the community how they experience it at street level so these kinds of images and transformations again to me their value is they help um, engage the community. They really help allow some degree of dialogue and some kind of trade-off discussions. And of course, we tried to identify the kind of implementation tools. Um, so um, so I, I'm sort of hitting some themes about transit-oriented development, and I, I wanted to just make one other kind of broad point. Uh, right now in, in the U.S., the Federal Transit Administration is, is getting away from this kind of nodal focus of islands of TOD to corridor and regional context. That is, we have many examples of nodes of walkable, mixed-use, bikeable neighborhoods off transit stations, which are surrounded by auto-oriented development. So unless you begin to get a critical mass of these nodes, ideally aligned along radio corridors, only then do you begin to get synergistic benefits. So we're kind of pushing this notion of transit-oriented networks. 
And you know uh, how we organize the densities is a, is a big part of this. Uh, that's sort of the message I gave earlier when I talked about that structural equation model in Los Angeles. But I think in this regard, you know, a classic example would be to compare a, a metropolis like Curitiba, which um, you can see is is one fifth the population of Sao Paulo. Uh, but but the fundamental difference is that these are linear plan densities. And um, and you know this kind of represents the bus rapid transit model of a place like Curitiba. That um, what happens is when you have a rubber tire bus on pavement, which has um, a, a little bit um, uh, the ability to accelerate and decelerate. Uh, you know it's. Uh, faster acceleration deceleration, you can get by with uh, closer station spacings, which is going to create more of a ribbon or a band of urbanism because uh, you know, when you get rail systems with longer station spacings, you, you begin to get these flat areas in between which are beyond a walk shed. So you tend to get these ribbon linear patterns. Well, um, so, so, you know, part of the point here is you can compare a city like Sao Paulo, which has very much helter-skelter unplanned densities, and it actually has a lower public transit per capita ridership rate. So densities are important, how they're designed and aligned and, uh, are important. Um, and you know the Curitiba story, it's, uh, you know, it, you can see the, the contrast in densities between the BRT corridor and the surrounding area, but why Curitiba, I think, is also success. Not a lot of people pick up on this. Is that they they run these bi-articulated buses, 270 passengers per vehicle, that stop very frequently on the main line, um, and they're you know they're they're bus-only lanes. There are frontage roads that cars can have immediate access to the buildings themselves. But but at the same time, they run these skip-stop buses that instead of stopping every quarter to half a kilometer, only stop every two to three kilometers. So they've layered in such a diverse of services in terms of if you're going long distances, you'll take these buses. If you're going shorter, intermediate distances, or to destinations unserved by these limited stop buses, you'll take this. So they've layered in so many service price points on these corridors uh, that you know it's just become intimately uh, a very you know, attractive place to work, live, do business. In fact, some of the most expensive apartments and condos in Curitiba are now along these these uh, corridors. So now, part of the story, uh, you know, it's kind of this TOD placemaking scheme. You know, I focus mainly on densities, but I think uniquely what you find in a place like Curitiba and, and a few other places where we have very productive transit and high-quality living environments, part of the story is also intermixing the land uses. So, so again, what you get is, is you get some people, when you have shops and housing and offices and activities spread along these corridors, you get a number of people making that trip, but you also get people making that trip. So you get mixed balanced land uses lead to mixed balanced flows. You get much more bi-directional flows, uh, which, which to me is very important. You get a very efficient utilization of infrastructure. In the United States, where we have all the jobs here and all the housing here, the trains and buses and freeways are jam-packed in one direction and then they're backhauling empty. Uh, and, and that's a very inefficient use of infrastructure. I, I would argue we almost have a fiduciary responsibility to taxpayers. These very expensive infrastructure investments, if we're going to get very efficient high utilization, we have to create the kind of land use environments and built forms that, again, create travel efficiency. So I, it's not just density, it's that intermixing of activities that have also created these kind of benefits. Um, I was just in Brasilia last year, which celebrated the 50th anniversary of the uh, Luis Costa plan, the master plan of Brasilia. And it, it, to me, it's an interesting contrast to Curitiba because it was designed with a totally different template. It was designed with a segregation of land uses at extremely low densities and, and an American-style car-based system, very formalist kind of master plan Newtown, uh, versus Curitiba, which we all know adopted a fundamentally different approach. And, and again, you can see the VKT per capita per year differences. Curitiba, you can say, is roughly uh, one-half the car 
carbon footprint if you accept the fact that there's a fairly direct uh, proportional correspondence between vehicle kilometers traveled and, and carbon dioxide emissions. So um, what they did at the 50th anniversary of the Brasilia master plan was basically to trot out a new plan which tries to infill and adaptively reuse the space to create a, a Curitiba style system. I mean, they're sort of now moving in that direction. So if, um, if imitation is the most sincere form of flattery, then you can say Curitiba has been quite successful. Um, I wanted to, before kind of bringing up a, a little research that I've done more directly on this topic between um, placemaking mobility and competitiveness, just bring a little American context into this. Um, as I mentioned, uh, we have now gotten away from focusing on nodes to focusing on corridors, and arguably the, the best example of this in the United States is now the, the Roslyn-Boston corridor. If you go across the Potomac River and, and Washington, D.C., we've got Northern Virginia, which um, has been a, w without exception, I think, the most successful rail investment because, like a magnet, a lot of growth has, has clustered around these stations. Uh, you can see the original plan from um, the late 60s it was called the bullseye concept, but it was very much this Stockholm, Curitiba kind of image of place. Now, what, probably the most important decision they made early on, if you're familiar with Northern Virginia, there's a huge freeway that the original plan, I-66, was to align this corridor in the median of the freeway, not unlike what we've done on the BART system. Uh, early on, they made the bold decision not to run it in the median freeway, instead to run it underground so they could maximize and leverage the development. And so that was a huge decision, along with the fact that uh, the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area has probably had the most robust regional economy of any American metropolitan area in the last 30 years. Tremendous amount of job growth, a lot of it due to the fact that there's high, high restrictions on growth in the District of Columbia. You can't have any buildings taller than the Washington Monument. That's by zoning law. So with all the you know, federal employment growth, it had to go somewhere where, well, having this nice underground corridor in the suburbs really became a catchment to handle that spillover growth that was going to happen outside of Washington. But they also introduced a lot of good textbook planning. The same message I gave you on Curitiba happened here. What you find along this roughly um, eight-kilometer corridor is, is a great mix of land uses. So, for instance, Virginia Square is largely um, a... a government civic entertainment center. It's got a um, performing arts center, a lot of government buildings. This is a lot of retail. Um, this has some government functions. Roslyn is office housing. Boston is a mix of all kinds of things. But they managed to intermix the land uses so that you get during the peak periods, roughly 55, 45% directional splits. The traffic is evenly uh, moving in both directions. So again, I, I would submit it's become a very efficient infrastructure investment. Um, now, what I was working with a group of uh, folks, the plan now is to extend this Roslyn-Boston line, the orange line, out to Dulles Airport in Northern Virginia. It's, it's one of the most uh, active international airports. And, and we're going to um, add four stations to Tyson's Corner. Now, I, I don't know if any of you have been to Tyson's Corner, but uh, this is actually the sixth largest employment center in, in the United States. It's got more jobs than downtown Miami. Uh, it, you know, it's just a massive... Um, this is from the cover of a book I wrote in 1989 that just shows the development pattern at that time. But it's, it's largely auto-driven stuff where it's just very ad hoc, piecemeal development that nothing connects to anything. There's no way to walk from one project to the other. It's a very hostile environment to pedestrians. So, uh, you know, you get double-stack left turn lanes, uh, four to five-minute wait cycles for pedestrians across, across these busy roads. So it's a very abysmal setting. So, so anyway, the idea is to take these four stations and radically transform this largely by infilling and building on parking lots. I mean, the great thing of surface parking lots is they're not 
terribly difficult to infill and, and adaptively reuse is, is development. So anyway, you can see the kind of vision uh, that's called for there, this kind of transformative change from an auto-oriented employment center to one of these more walkable, uh, livable, placemaking uh, kinds of settings. Just to give you a scale of, of what we're talking about, Tyson's Corner, again, putting four new metro stations in here, you know, it, it's, it's like twice the size of downtown Boston or, uh, or the core of Washington, D.C. So it's a massive uh, employment district. And you know, if, if we can manage this transformation from this car-oriented to this kind of higher quality walking environment, um, it, it'll be uh, hopefully a, a, a prototype for other employment centers to follow suit. So, so the idea is you know, kind of not unlike what I've talked about, wedding cake style densities, high densities within a five minute walk shed, breaking up um, the, the uh, network within a secondary internal collectors, a modified grid system. So these kinds of transformations. Building a secondary bike path, it's all about internal connectivity, what we call the last mile problem. I mean, this is going to be a landscape where even if you take public transit, most of your destinations are going to be beyond a walking distance. So you're going to have to have um, a great bikeway network, a secondary uh, grade separated bikeway network. So that was part of that scheme. Um, just to give you a, a streetscape perspective of the kinds of transformations of this, you know, Again, as we see in the top, is taking surface parking lots, impervious surface, heat island effects, infilling them, putting gardens, uh, mixing things so you internalize a lot of activities on site instead of people driving off site. And when you run the numbers, um, we have this 3D modeling visualization. This is work I did with PD, PB placemaking Parsons Brinkerhoff. Uh, we ran the numbers, and these were the sort of estimates we, we came up with in terms of uh, CO2 equivalent uh, reductions per capita. One of the other things that um, we're trying to push in this particular project, and again, it's, it's kind of the spanning of placemaking and, and um, conservation, is what we're calling green TOD, and, and I think the best examples, you're much more familiar with this than I am, but a place like Hammerby Showstead outside of Stockholm, or Bobben, uh, Rosseveld in, in Germany, outside of Freiburg. But um, on the one hand, doing all these things on the mobile source side so that you reduce BKT, you know, encouraging transit, bike sharing, walk sharing, minimal parking, but we've also tried to demonstrate uh, uh, using examples from places like this that if you um, have higher densities, you get a lot of, of green architecture, Im embedded energy sa savings from shared walled units, better insulation, or as what happens in, in Vauburn, um, they've got these cogeneration power plants are using some of the waste of commercial uses to create uh, energy and cooling and heating, and some of that excess energy created from commercial uses are going to nearby residential uses. So a lot of co-sharing uh, that comes from these activities. And if you sort of do the numbers on sort of the green urbanism side of things, community gardens instead of, again, impervious surface parking lots. You replace that with interior community gardens. Um, some kind of, and even things like using uh, the bus stations as photovoltaic canopies to pipe into a smart grid to help pay for the, or to help cover some of the immediate energy needs of, of this kind of mixed-use transit-oriented community. Uh, you know, we, we ran some numbers in the case of this uh, Tyson's corner transformation I'm talking about, and these were the kind of carbon reductions that, that we came up with. Now, um, just to sort of close, um, uh, sharing a couple of research projects that that I was involved in that kind of more directly got at this sort of placemaking transit economic development link. Um, and I sort of use this term hesitantly because it's such an overwrought, overused term, but, but I think part of the logic is how do we, in certain global cities, and I'm going to show examples of work we did in, in Seoul, Korea, as well as um, some of the work we did in Hong Kong, but cities that are part of the global economy, they're sort of command and, and control posts for knowledge-based, high-skilled, um, agglomeration-based employment. Uh, how do we begin to create those kind of clusters 
clusters that appeal for people not only to work there but also to live there and shop and spend a lot more time. So that was sort of the logic. So, um, you know, labor needs access and it happens obviously through um, mobility but, but the notion here is proximity and, and again you can recruit and retain and, and attract these high skilled knowledge based workers who are very time sensitive through a, a very strong focus on livability. Um, now, uh, just to share some work that we did on this question, uh, I had a Korean student and uh, had access to some pretty good data on land markets and what the responses were to some, some major transformations that happened to Seoul. You know, Seoul, their frame of reference is what can we do to this city to better compete with Shanghai and Hong Kong, other parts of, of, of the uh, East Asian economy? Well, um, Mumbak Lee, who's currently the, the, the president, of course, of South Korea, but he very much ran on a platform of urban transformation. He, he made a trip to uh, Curitiba, he brought Jaime Lerner out, who talked about some of the things he did there, went to Curitiba and said, okay, I'm going to have to start adopting the, this approach. And, and, and his philosophy was what I call land reclamation. You know, we had for the last 20, 25 years followed this model of American-style design. We've given over much of the space of the city to moving cars. And you can see this happens to be what in front of the uh, Seoul City Hall looked like um, in the early 2000s. And then they took away this huge traffic circle and gave it over to pedestrians in the way of, of a, a civic oval. And probably the project that gets the most attention is this um, transformation of this Chinggis Chinyan elevated freeway right in the heart of Seoul um, took it out and replaced it with, with the original stream that was originally stream. And, and in truth, what happened here is uh, this was a, you know, to no great surprise, an elevated freeway which um, had a stream underneath, so a lot of corrosion was going on. So they had to decide whether to rebuild or reconstruct this or just absolutely tear it down and transform it into this greenway, to, to air the greenway. And, and they went. With a, I mean, what I find surprising is just they were able to do this in two years. In, in, in America, uh, the environmental reviews uh, entitlements to do this would take 20 years. So, you know, there's something to be said by a very forceful mayor of, of uh, getting things done quickly. Well, um, it, you know, you've got to set this in a historical context. Historically, public transit was privatized and uh, not really rationally designed in any way. So, and then Seoul, very much in the 90s, followed an American style, and I would almost say UK style pattern of urbanization, of building master plan new towns on the periphery. And like a, t a, a tidal flow, just expecting all these people to commute inbound in the morning and go back to their communities in the evening. So extreme traffic jams, bad air pollution. So, so again, the logic is how do we move away from these master plan suburban new towns to creating somewhat new town in towns to re-energize, re uh, regenerate the urban districts. So land reclamation was a big part of it. Um, so this happens to be the second most popular tourist destination now in Seoul. So it, it, it's a wonderful facility. Uh, and um, you know, this happens to show uh, some of the effects on thermal heating. I mean, you could say part of livability is to, is to live in a place which is less oppressive in terms of heat. So this simply takes a thermal count of the greenway uh, and compares it to a parallel road which is roughly two blocks away. And you can see it's roughly two to five degrees centigrade lower, which in the summertime can make a big difference in terms of quality of life. So, uh, you know, what, what we did in this particular study that was published in Urban Studies, um, if, if this kind of transformation, uh, removal of, of land from motorists and giving it over to pedestrians and public transit users is a positive thing, then real estate markets should reflect that. They, you know, there's a very finite, limited supply of real estate in high-quality corridors. The marketplace will bid up the privilege to work and do business or live there. So hopefully that'll be a fairly good reflectant of, of, of the positive benefits that came out of this. So we, you know, we did a classic uh, analysis, hedonic price model using what's called multi-level modeling. We did a kind of a um, site level set of factors and then a set of district level factors and, and, and got at this. And without going through the modeling detail, controlling for a whole slew of variables, and again this is published in urban studies about two years ago, um, this simply looks at, red represents 
the, the land value premium of properties, this happens to be commercial properties within 100 uh, meters of that corridor relative to properties beyond uh, 500 meters, controlling for everything else. So this basically is saying, when it was a freeway, if you were a pro commercial property within 100 meters, you were roughly 20% more valuable than a property beyond 500 meters, everything else being equivalent, all the other same attributes. But you can see with the Greenway, there was even a higher premium. And, and we were very significantly be able to, to measure that. In fact, we, you know, we tried to take that premium increment and measure it over the entire impact zone of, of the transformation to come up with an economic benefit estimate. But you know, the numbers were, I think, pretty persuasive that uh, the marketplace assigned a much higher value to live in a higher quality, uh, to work and do business in a higher quality setting than when it was a greenway than a freeway. Um, this was another part of the study. We tried to use location quotients. Um, that tells you the relative concentration of employment sectors in this district relative to the region average. So uh, what we called creative class was you know, obviously uh, people in the creative arts, uh, but also we inc included engineers and architects and uh, even financial advisors. So it was a fairly loose definition of, of, of Richard Florida's uh, creative class. But, but, but nonetheless, what you could think of as high-skilled, high-value-added employment sectors uh, you can see again, there was a, a fairly significant increase in the location quotient um, as a greenway versus the freeway. So, so this basically says uh, the creative class workers, um, th this is the premium, the, the change in location quotient within 100 meters vis-a-vis, -vis, in this case it was beyond 1,000 meters. So it's, it's basically saying you've got relatively higher concentration of creative class workers under the greenway configuration than you did the freeway configuration. Now, you know, the question is, is how, how can you withdraw road capacity and create a livable, high-quality environment? Well, obviously, the key to this was bus rapid transit. You can't just simply take away freeways and walk home. So parallel to this effort of land reclamation and trying to create a livable, high-quality place, they massively invested in bus rapid transit. And uh, basically changing it from a curbside configuration to uh, a lot of median uh, exclusive lanes. And, and very significant investment in BRT infrastructure, um, you know, it, the numbers speak for themselves. It, it, if you do this very well, and, and I think Seoul has, has a very well-designed bus rapid transit network, uh, you create benefits both for bus users but non-bus users as well. Part of the benefits they found in Seoul's case was that when you have less conflict of buses, and, and we know buses are the most vulnerable vehicles in a mixed flow traffic stream. They're slow moving, changing lanes. They get stuck more easily, slow acceleration, deceleration than regular cars. What you get is better time adherence, on-time scheduled adherence, more reliable services, and that was a big part of the, the boon that happened there. Um, by the way, uh, we also published recently in Transport Policy the benefits of, of being near the bus lane, and there was positive benefits there as well. Um, but, you know, we, we have now a movement underway in, in the United States, and uh, some have referred to it as, as freeway deconstruction, but, but this perception that we have designed American cities with this massive road-based infrastructure to connect suburbanites to downtown jobs, who then abandoned the city at night and on weekends. And, and that was the wrong, uh, wrong way to design our cities. If we indeed want to create walkable, viable urban districts, I would almost say European-style communities, uh, we need to withdraw some of that capacity and transform these places. So where I come in San from in San Francisco, uh, if you go to the waterfront, this is what it looked like 15 years ago. That elevated structure came down, and now we have a nice boulevard. And, and We've run very similar numbers in San Francisco and found very similar positive impacts in terms of how landmark has responded. Now, in the case of San Francisco, it took the Loma Prieta earthquake to kind of cripple that facility and it sort of came. I, I would like to say we were progressive enough to say, let's just take it out. Uh, that wasn't the case. It was either reconstructing, rebuilding it, or taking it down, uh, or the Octavia Boulevard. Um, I, I'm going to sort of close on this theme that, um, well, you know, 
fine and dandy. Um, you know, we can create better urban milieus around transit stations and maybe encourage at the margins some people to give up their cars and move from car-oriented suburbs to walkable mixed-use communities along transit corridors, but how do you pay for this? Um, and, and I think that the evidence from Hong Kong shows that if you do this well, <coughs> Um, you not only create more sustainable urbanism and more livable communities, but you also generate money because these are high-end segments of the employment sector uh, and, and residents that value high aesthetic, high amenity environments. And in theory, the value recapture potential should be quite high. And uh, we, we put out this article on Hong Kong that came out in Urban Studies in 2009 that basically that was the message that transit agencies are in a position to recoup some of that value added uh, when not only they plop down a station in a neighborhood, but they also tend to improving the environment. Tremendous windfalls can come from that. So we looked at the MTR in Hong Kong and uh, particularly focusing on the new somewhat semi-high-speed train that goes to the airport. Um, MTR is a uh, it's a quasi-private corporation. I, I think what made the, the mass transit railway in Hong Kong uh, so unique is that um, even though they're a private corporation, so they, they sell shares of the company on the Hong Kong stock market, so they, there's equity ownership, they have to produce dividends and returns to investors, uh, two-thirds of the company is owned by the Special Administrative Region of Hong Kong government. So they're very much institutionally what I would think of as a mixed uh, governmental entity. <laughs> they're predominantly owned by the public sector, but they have private stakeholders. So they have to be entrepreneurial on one hand, they have to make money, but they also have to represent the public interest. So I, I think institutionally they reflect the mixed, good, semi-public nature of public transit. So right at the outset I think that's a big part of their success story, is I think they have the right institutional formula. But you can see 52% of the income of this transit agency comes from land development, air rights, property development. 10% um, comes from retail concessions. Pretty much every major station, I'm sure many of you have been to Hong Kong, have connected retail shopping malls. And the transit agency is in the business of not just running trains and buses, but also selling goods uh, because you know these are co-benefiting things. The more commercial activities you create at, at the, around the stations, you create trip generation nodes, places where people want to go to and will use the trains. And then train users will be happen to go from the station concourse to the surrounding neighborhood will walk through these places and just uh, purchase items. So it's kind of a win-win strategy. So, so anyway, 62% of the revenue of this public transit agency comes from some kind of land-related activities at the stations. And, and there's no other system that comes close to that. And by the way, they make a profit. They, they, they're not receiving any kind of public subsidies. Um, this happens to be the Singy Station, which I don't have a pointer, but this station uh, here, <laughs> you can sort of follow my finger. Uh, but you know, this is just a classic model. So it's a very vertically integrated structure. So they have um, several level express train going to the air airport, and then a second level train. Uh, this is where they put the parking and some of the shopping facilities. Uh, and then residential parking, and, and then uh, high-end residential condos with a podium garden at top. So it's very aesthetic, high amenity things. Um, j just very quickly, the way they recapture value is uh, Hong Kong government, of course, owns all land. And they sell the development rights either to private developers, or if it happens to be land around a planned MTR station, they'll sell it to the MTR at a greenfield price. That is, at a price before there is whatever the value of the land prior to the station coming in. Of course, if they announce the station is going to come in, speculators will drive up the cost. So this is even before they formally have settled on they're going to plop a station down. So they get basically land at a pretty cheap price. Of course, in a very land-constrained setting like Hong Kong, they can then try out a plan, we're going to put a station here, then they can sell the development rights to private developers with a rail station in place. And it's that incremental difference which creates huge revenue streams that go into actually paying for the plan investment. So they, they're sort of leading constantly with 
acquiring land at a pre-rail price, selling the development rights with rail assumed in place, and taking the incremental difference to pay. Basically, value capture. And by the way, the positive thing also is it cools off land speculation if there's basically one owner of that set of property. So, you know, what, what we, we basically tried to study is, um, maybe I should show this slide before. Up to about year 2000, the MTR Corporation was run basically by financial accountants and business managers who just wanted to squeeze as much profit by building as high as they could above the station. But they weren't getting terribly attractive places to live or work. It was all done from kind of a logistical, money-maximizing perspective. And what you tended to get was pretty dreadful environments around the station. Very, you know, unattractive entry points and conflict points. They just weren't a very attractive pedestrian milieu. So what we call the pre-placemaking access, a lot of the early property, uh, rail plus property projects looked like this. In 2001, they formed a town planning urban design division within the MTR Corporation that started preaching the principle of, of urban quality, placemaking, livability, and actually started working on enhancing the quality of, of environment. So what you found after, you know, this is pre-2000, this is after 2000, you've got a dramatic transformation in the quality of the access to the station in terms of streetscapes, um, uh, wayfinding, uh, direct connectivity, uh, shade, it gets very hot there, so some, some of the places have nice canopies and corridors. So um, more or less what we did was we did walkability audits. We took a number of these um, stations pre-placemaking and post-placemaking and, and basically did scoring on the quality along these lines and ran a few models and without getting into any great depth, we, we, we estimated that the, the premium that they got from enhancing the immediate environment around the stations, controlling for all the other factors, was on the order of roughly a 25% premium. So, I mean, we didn't have to tell them that. The management quickly found out they were making a heck of a lot more profit in the air rights leasing once they attended to the quality of the immediate environment around the stations. Plus, we were able to show it quite a significant ridership bonus. Um, I actually gave this a very similar presentation to the um, Los Angeles County Metropolitan Transit Authority a few months back, and I, I, I slipped a slide in just telling them, well, th this is how we built the original rail system in Los Angeles. Probably some of you know this story, but uh, this happens to be the Los Angeles inter-urban um, key system, kind of a, a fast streetcar line, uh, which existed in you know over 100 years ago. And it, it, at the time, there were 1,200 uh, directional uh, miles of a rail line connecting you know, throughout the Los Angeles basin. It, purportedly at the time, Los Angeles was, was the most rail intensive city globally. And you can see this happens to be Colorado Boulevard going to Pasadena from downtown LA to Pasadena in 2006. Then they laid this rail line uh, six years later, you had a compact, mixed-use, grid street, walkable kind of TOD in a very high-quality urban environment. In fact, you can go to Pasadena now and still some of the highest quality housing is, is around this immediate station area that, that they built. So, so this, this is, the Hong Kong model is not a new model. You know, it's been used successfully even in Los Angeles, the United States. So, so anyway, um, let me just close by saying that we have a very active debate in the United States. Uh, part of the debate is this question, do we solve all of our environmental problems and climate change problems by advancing sustainable mobility? And there's a group of people saying that, and then others are saying sustainable urbanism. Um, I happen to think we need to make progress on both fronts. Uh, in part because I think there are co-benefits. I mean, the great thing of having um, limited performance vehicles, you know, battery operated or electric vehicles, is they can perform quite well in more compact neighborhoods where you don't need a, a very extensive range of the vehicle, very limited range mobility can handle trips, or shared parking, or all the other kind of co-benefits I, I briefly mentioned. So I, I think, for, unfortunately, we've splintered into this debate, one versus the other, but I think if we do it well, there can be co-benefits in both of them. 
And increasingly, we're embracing the notion in the United States, and again, it's at the very highest level. The minister, minister of the Federal Transit Administration is saying that part of our formula to make transit and walking and cycling more successful is we've got to focus on communities and places and livability uh, to draw these choice consumers into these kind of very neighborhoods. So uh, it's kind of motivated us to begin to kind of do these kind of comparative analyses to see if indeed this holds true. I have to say the frustration we have in the United States is that we have very dysfunctional arrangements. I mean, I showed the extreme of Los Angeles, but free parking is so prevalent. 98% of suburban destinations you can park for free. Our petrol prices are probably one half per liter what you're paying. There are so many perverse price incentives and underpricing, it's very hard to rationalize anything in terms of how we redesign our cities and how it affects behavior. There's just too, too much distortions in the system. So I, I almost find it necessary to look at places like Hong Kong and Seoul and these other places to realize that we can't carbon copy like trans, take those experience and transplant them to American cities. But I think a lot of the core lessons are still there. So I, I've used this style of research to, to begin to suggest that uh, you know, placemaking, livability is important as part of the sustainable urbanism equation, uh, but we have to make progress on both fronts. We, we need sustainable technologies, fuel supplies, and many more choices. I mean, I guess you know, I'm closing on this term of choices. Um, where I sort of broadly come out in this is America, uh, most of our zoning and design templates are built around a very homogenous set of assumptions of household structures, lifestyle preferences, two-car families with two kids, and uh, you know most people wanting to use a car for very homogenized behaviors. Uh, we're finding we're, we're, I'm sure, the same thing as you're, you're the case. Is much more plural societies. Much, you know, the traditional household is no longer kids. I mean, the majority of households where I come from, the San Francisco Bay Area, have no kids in households. Um, at least in many of the, the core cities. Uh, so this idea of kind of a standardized set of mobility options and living environments and working environments, we're, in many ways I think what we're trying to do is challenge that, create more price points, variety, options of living and working and mobility. And so anyway, I, I think that hopefully the collectivity of this is, is it's not social engineering. It's very much in keeping with shifting household structures, lifestyle preferences, the, the increasing plurality of the traveling public. We need to better match that. And I think much of this is, is driven that by that core notion. Um, Anyway, I, I've gone way too long. Uh, I will close with that and, and happily uh, invite questions of comments of any kind. So, so thank you. Thank you.